just thank you, Father, that death could not hold you in the veil tore. We thank you, Father, that you allowed us, that in that tearing of the veil, the veil, you allowed us to come into your most holy place and be near you. We thank you that you silence the boast of sin and grave and that the heavens are roaring the praise of your glory. We thank you, Abba Father, that you have no rival, you have no equal, that you are forever and now that you reign, that yours is the kingdom and yours is the glory, and that your name is above all names. And we praise you today. Amen. Chapter 17. We're going to stick to verses 1 through 5 today. Uh, So I'm actually doing much better. I want to brag just a little bit that... Most everybody else, like, they get to chapter 17 and they do, like, a whole message just on verse 1. Because you get here and this is, this really is a gem. It's an amazing piece, uh, you know, in in the Gospels. And uh, so we are going to spend some time here. But if you have your books open, we're going to go to uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And it says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So this chapter is called the High Priestly Prayer. And we have moved from the upper room discourse to this prayer of prayers. And we can picture the evening and how it has gone. Remember that Jesus told two of the disciples to go into town where they would find a man carrying a jar of water. And they were told to approach and tell the man that they needed a room and to follow him where he led them and he would have a room prepared for them to have the Passover meal. And then they had Passover together and it started with Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Jesus gave Judas the first morsel and a seat at his side. Jesus blessed the cup and the bread, creating the supper we're going to celebrate today that we call communion. It's a sign pointing to the new covenant, the new agreement for the new church. Jesus dismissed Judas, who went on his errand of betrayal. And after Judas left, Jesus began pouring into the disciples. He is giving them a series of promises. And he predicts the future and prepares them for the hours that are to come. He tells Peter of his denial and of Judas's betrayal. The disciples react in shock and in horror to the revelation that one of them would betray. Peter swears he would never desert Jesus. The other disciples ask themselves, am I the one, am I the one who's going to betray Jesus? Jesus tells the disciples again about his death. He also speaks of his resurrection. He says, I'm going away for a little while, but then I'll be back. And then he gives them promises, promises of of peace and love and joy, promises of living, of abiding, 
with Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, both in this world and in the next world. He promises them persecution. He promises them they will lose their lives and livelihoods as they know it. They will be cast out of the synagogues. It's a heck of a promise to a Jew, isn't it? To say, your church is going to throw you out because of me. You will be cast out of everything you know because of me. You will lose your family because of me. Lose your business, rejected by society, and ultimately, they will be killed for proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And as they have walked the streets on this spring evening, Jesus has spoken all of these things. John 13 and 14, 15 and 16 record these events. And we can picture John. We can picture John after his brother has died, beheaded for proclaiming Jesus, writing down these truths, inspired and carried by the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised on this very night. Jesus says, I'm sending the Spirit to you, the Spirit of truth, and he will remind you of all of these things. And you can picture John going, yeah, I remember. Lord, I remember. And writing them down. And the reaction, their reaction, the disciples' reaction is not mixed. The disciples are filled with doubts and sorrow and grief. And Jesus spends time, takes time to reassure and comfort them. As Jesus is heading to the cross, as pain and death bear down on him, as he takes up the cup of God's wrath, his heart, his mind is still on the suffering of his beloved. And we can take these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is like we are sitting in the living room listening to our grandfather and his great uncles tell their stories. We can feel the love between them as they tell us shared history. These special three years they spent in training with the master before going out, sometimes together, sometimes apart, and continuing the master's work. Each of them brings their side, their perspective to these events, as well as their heart and wisdom and truth. Of those Gospels, of the four Gospels, John 17 is unique. All of the chapters of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John deal with the 33 years of Jesus' life and work on earth. His birth fleeing to Egypt, returned to Nazareth, life as a young man with his family, and then the short three years of ministry with the disciples. John 17 is unique. It deals with the ministry and work of Jesus after earth. This is a conversation. It's like we get to walk into the Holy of Holies, like we get to be into the, the throne room of God and listen in on a conversation between the king and the prince, between these two. They get to have this conversation, and it is about Jesus' ministry when he leaves, about him taking his place as our intercessor in heaven. Jesus goes to the throne where he is the judge and the defense attorney. He acquits those whose punishment has already been doled out on the cross. This chapter is held apart in the Gospels, and it should be. So we're going to really take some time and soak this one in. It is a special part of a very special book. And the point of that is to say that 
Hopefully we can this Sunday renew our passion for these gospels as well as for our own histories. Last night, um, uh, a few months ago, Brooks' Aunt Margot passed away kind of unexpectedly. And last night we went over and had her memorial service. And, you know, the history is amazing. When you get to sit around as a, as a family and, and tell stories and relate to one another, that is special time. And it's a time when we can gather together and write down and record and then pass down to our kids. I can remember, you know, my mom telling me about her great aunt, Ida. And she was a writer. She actually was published. And I I have a few of her poems. One of her poems, you know, I still have the same desk that I had when I was in junior high. If you guys didn't know that, when I'm doing message prep, it's the exact same desk that I used when I was in junior high. And on the little part, I had one of her poems written down that I, I put up there. Just as a connection to our past. Those stories are important. And we have a hunger for those stories, a hunger for our history. There is a reason why sites like Ancestry.com do so well. We desire a connection to the past and the future. We long to know where we came from and to pass it down to our children and our grandchildren. We hope, right, we hope to learn from the successes and the failures of the past, as well as to help future generations avoid our failures and to build on our successes. So we just need to make sure that we are taking time to write down or record somehow what we know about our family, where we came from, what you did. A lot of times we, you know, in our, in, in, we, we're too humble. We don't want to write down our accomplishments in life. We can't do that. We need to write it down so that future generations know because so much of it gets lost in history. And our, our kids and our grandkids end up having to try and piece together our lives later on without having really knowing everything. I, Brooks, um, Uncle Bob is, is, is an amazing guy. Like, he, he just lost his wife, and he's a very thoughtful man. So he actually went through and, and actually got the military records of Brooks' grandpa, who was in World War II. He because Bob was in the Air Force, he was able to get these military records and he got all of these together, his ship, all of the things where he served, all of those pieces and brought them over to us the last time he came through doing this this, this, mission of, of archive, of making sure that we had that information. But he didn't have a firsthand account. He had to go back through and, and piece it together from, from records. We could do better. We can write down those histories and pass them on to our kids. And think about what, what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John did here. They wrote it down. And I'm not saying what you're going to write is going to be the gospel, but at least it's something to help our future generations avoid our failures and to build on our successes. But again, this high priestly prayer is a special gem a crown jewel in the treasure chest of the Bible. If you have a red-letter Bible, this is one of the few chapters where the whole chapter is read. It is, with few exceptions, entirely the words of Christ. We could spend a lifetime studying the Bible and never leave this chapter. The language is simple, it's plain, 
but the ideas and the truths are bigger than we can understand. Just start at the very beginning, that, that, that very first thing that he says. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said. Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven as he prays. Why does he do that? How is he able to do that? Why are his eyes focused on heaven as he prays to the Father? He and the Father are one. Is he teaching us? That's how we should pray. Is he worthy and equal? Is he looking forward to where he is going? Is he showing us what to do? Or is this a special connection that he is having with the Father? Just there we could spend time. So we can spend a lifetime studying the Bible and never leave this chapter. The language, again, is simple and plain, but the ideas and the truths are bigger than we can ever understand. And we will spend a few brief hours in this chapter, but know there is a lot that we are going to leave on the table. And there is a truth that we should learn, that many of the questions we have about God, about Jesus, about faith, about the church, are answered in the Bible. That seems obvious, but we can also find comfort and care and reassurance and hope and wisdom in these pages. And while you know, I'm leading us in study this morning, each of us is a missionary, a gospel spreader, a preacher. We are commanded to proclaim the good news of Jesus with our words and deeds, and especially with our love. Here's an interesting thing. There's about three and a half billion people on the planet who have never received the gospel. They live in in unreached places of the world. Isn't that crazy to think that here we are a couple thousand years after Christ has died and there's still roughly 50% of the population who doesn't have the Bible, who who have been unreached by Christians? Here's something else that's crazy. If each one of us, everybody in this room, if we reached one person every 10 years, that's all we did, is spoke the gospel to one person every 10 years of our lives, in the course of one generation, that would be gone. Every single person would know. Isn't that amazing? That if that's all you did, is one person every decade you shared the gospel with, one person who was unreached, you shared them with, that if every Christian did that, in one generation, in 60 years, every person on the planet would be reached with the gospel. We would go from three and a half billion people who have never heard the gospel to every person on the planet having heard the gospel. Every one of us is a missionary. As we're receiving the word, we need to think about how we're going to proclaim that word. Set a goal. This decade, one decade, 10 years, I'm going to reach one unreached person with the gospel. So last week, we spoke about three virtues, three principles that should govern our words and our deeds, love and trust and hope. And this is living at a master's level. We're past high school and even college. We are taking our philosophy and our science and are applying it to our thoughts, our work, and our relationships today and tomorrow. And thing is, we face tough questions We face tough dilemmas today and tomorrow. 
We love God. We love our brothers and sisters. We have proclaimed Jesus as our Lord, our master, our owner. We have repented of our sins, and we continue to repent of our sins. We have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're devoted to fellowship and to prayer, to the apostles' teaching and to breaking bread together. And every situation, we should do our best to apply those core values, our core virtues, a love and trust and hope with our hearts and our minds open, with our lives bent towards our mission, with the knowledge that what we hear today, what we receive today, we proclaim tomorrow. So let's study these words John and the Holy Spirit gave us. So let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you, to find the Lord's Prayer in your Bible, where would you turn? Both of us, I, would turn to Matthew chapter 6, right? It says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I say this is a misnomer. This isn't the Lord's Prayer. He's teaching us how to pray. These are prayer instructions. Maybe the disciples' prayer is a better name. John 17 is the Lord's prayer, the King's prayer, the Master's prayer. It is Jesus praying out loud to the Father. Much of what we will read, we have heard before. Jesus has said many of these words in his commands and promises to the disciples. Now he is praying in the will of the Father. We can't skip that part in the will of the Father for the fulfillment of those promises. They're walking side by side. They have the same intent. They have the same plan, the same purpose. They are in lockstep together. That's why when when Jesus prays, and they're, they're much higher than us. This is a simple way to say it, but they're in the will of the Father. When we pray, that's what we're seeking to do, is to be in lockstep with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That we're all moving together with the same purpose, with the same plan, that our thoughts and our actions and our words would be theirs. That's what we're trying to do when we're, when we're praying, is we're seeking that kind of communication, that kind of will, that we are aligned with theirs, that what we're asking for glorifies them. And that's where Jesus goes immediately. He says, glorify me that I may glorify you. When we are praying, we are seeking God's glory. We are seeking the glory of God. The prayer is divided into three parts. The first part Jesus prays to the Father for himself. In the second part, he prays to the Father for the eleven, for the disciples. In the third, he prays to the Father for all believers, for the church of the new covenant. 
We're going to focus in on those first five verses, the part where Jesus prays for himself. We're going to start, we're going to use the word humiliation in a Bible professor way. We usually think of humiliation as the shame felt when we are exposed or in an embarrassing situation. Think of the the woman caught in adultery. She was dragged out naked from her bed of infidelity. Her shameful act was exposed to her friends, her neighbors, her family, and she was humiliated. In our culture, humiliation is found in in pranks, right, or some sort of caught-on-camera moment. How many of you guys remember the old show, Candid Camera? Am I the, the only one who remembers that show? Right, the, the new one, I guess, is that Impractical Jokers, right, where they put the little earbud in everybody's you know, ear and then they tell them to do stuff, and if they don't do it, they don't win the money. Or uh, even like the America's Funniest Home Videos, right? We, when we use the word humiliation, we usually mean public ridicule, people laughing at you after a trick or a prank or an embarrassing moment. That is not what we mean by humiliation here. We're using it the Bible study way. So we're going to go back to John 1. chapter. You know, This is John 1, 1 through 5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is God. Last week, we read the disciples say that Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus was crucified for saying he was the Son of God. When we talk about humiliation, Jesus somehow set aside his primary nature and submitted to the Father. The Word of God who spoke the universe into being, the author, the creator, the sustainer of all creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great physician, the great I am. He humbled himself. He submitted to the Father. He set aside his glory to redeem us. This is a a glimpse of who Jesus is. It's in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Jesus is faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is our Jesus. But he humiliated himself. He submitted himself. If you flip over to Matthew 1 or Luke 2, he was born of a woman. He grew in stature and wisdom, Luke 2.52. He was tempted like us, like Matthew chapter 4. However, unlike us, he did not sin. He humbled himself to take on the form of man. 
he humbled himself uh, to death. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He submitted himself to the planet. He submitted himself to this place. He took the low position of a slave, washing even the feet of the disciples, which was the lowest position that he could take at the dinner table. This is in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There he is. The TV show, Undercover Boss, right? It's based on this. It's a, it's a Bible story. It's based on the humility of Christ. The most powerful, the most important, the most wealthy person in a vast empire humbles him or herself and goes to the front lines. We are fascinated by watching the CEO sweeping the floors or stocking the shelves or waiting on customers or working the drive through right? It's compelling. It's compelling when we see someone of prestige and wealth and power intentionally take a low position. Every episode is a Bible story. Every single one. They are. That's what Christ did. That's the image. That's why it's compelling. Because we are seeing the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Most High, take the lowest position. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 10 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Jesus, fully man and fully God, humbled himself, submitted to the Father, and ultimately submitted to death. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and in heaven on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has humbled himself. He has taken the low position of a man. He has taken the low position of a carpenter's son. He has submitted to the authorities. When he is arrested, he does not fight, He doesn't fight the Jews or the Romans. He doesn't even criticize Pilate or Ananias or Caiaphas or the Sanhedrin. He warns them of their folly, for sure, of how they are unsaved, but he does not rebel against the system. And in his low position, he prays to the Father for the promises he has told the disciples. He starts off by recognizing two things, the hour has come and their relationship. So John 17, 1 through 5 says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For hundreds of years, the Israelites have been waiting for the Messiah. 
The disciples have been hearing Jesus say, the hour has not yet come. If we were to go back to John chapter 2, verse 4, that's exactly what Jesus says to Mary. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. And Jesus replies, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. My hour hasn't come. Now, he says, Father, the hour has come. Over and over again, Jesus said it wasn't time yet. In Nazareth, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. It wasn't time. Several times, they picked up stones to stone him to death. It wasn't time. Jesus predicted his death over and over, told the disciples over and over again he was going to die. Now, the time has come. John 12, 23 through 33 just teases this idea. It says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there heard it and said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus says, now is the time. The takeaway from that is to say that there is a plan and a purpose in creation. And it is a good plan. It is for good purposes. God wants to bless us. If we were to flip over to Genesis chapter 1 and, uh, and 2, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit bring this creation into being and call it good. God creates man, puts an image of himself, a spark of the divine in man and calls it good. God gives man authority over creation and blesses us. He says, go out, fill the earth, multiply, have authority over it. Recently, we were just talking about it, the court overturned Roe v. Wade. It's weird, right, that a lot of people are like, man, I, I don't know what this means. But all the, the court did was throw the issue back to the legislatures. It suddenly wasn't made illegal or, or anything here in the U.S. It just means the federal and state legislatures can do their jobs. Here in Colorado, right, abortion is still legal based on law passed earlier this year. But one of the questions that people ask kind of constantly is, why are, are Christians predominantly pro-life? But you can flip to Genesis and read that multiplying, reproducing, filling the earth is part of God's blessing on mankind and that each of us is in the image, has a spark of that divine. That's why there is trouble when we try to take God's blessing for ourselves or to reject God's blessing. The whole story of the, the Tower of Babel is the story of people refusing God's command to go, to be fruitful, to receive the blessing of filling the earth. Instead, they stay and build a tower. Think about Jacob and Esau. Jacob tries to steal a blessing, an inheritance he has already been given. While Esau rejects his inheritance and blessing. Abraham and Sarah try to steal a blessing they have already been promised by having Ishmael. 
See, sin is man taking God's place, trying to take God's position or authority in our lives. Grace is God taking our place, taking the punishment we deserve for our rebellion, for our rejection of his blessings and commands. So Jesus says the hour has come, the hour of purpose, the hour of plan, the hour of redemption has come. And when we look out at any part of the world from the rocks and the dirt, the bugs, the flowers, the trees, the animals, even the sun and the moon and the stars, the planets and the galaxies, we can see that we are inside this giant clock, a precisely made, exactly tuned, crafted piece of machinery. The craftsmanship is is exquisite. It's stunning. There isn't a a piece of art or industry that compares to the scale, the precision, the mechanism of creation. And God and Jesus, the Father, the Son, they have crafted this beautiful timepiece, and they know it inside and out. And they know every movement of every gear, the swing of every weight and counterweight, the movement of the hands, the tick and the whir, the uncoiling of the springs. And these movements... And these moments are no surprise to them. All of history, all of time is coming to an hour. From Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Daniel, all of history comes to this hour in this place. Here from eternity past to eternity future, everything changes. All of history receives the hope of salvation in Jesus. It is such a moment in time that the earth shook, the veil was torn, the sun refused to shine, the dead came out of their graves, and in his humiliation, Jesus was glorified, and grace poured out to past and present and future. And again, John 12, 31 through 33 says this. It says, now is the time for judgment on this world. The hour has come. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And when I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And then he finishes in John 16. He says, I have told you these things. Why? So that in you, in me, you may have peace. I send you my peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's where he's going. He says, the hour has come for me to overcome the world. Judgment. Prince of the world driven out. Drawing all people to myself. And it happened. The earth shook. The veil was torn. The sun refused to shine. The dead came out of their graves in this hour. Then Jesus talks about relationship. See, when we pray, we give glory to God and Jesus. We honor them for their rightful positions as God, as Lord, as King. Between God and Jesus, it is different. That is why the language is so striking to us. Because we are not Jesus. We are not God. Jesus can turn his eyes heavenward and can receive glory. We are fallen sinners. We should be like the tax collector, eyes downward, beating our breasts, knowing we are not worthy to approach the throne. But Jesus and God are equal parts of the triune God. Jesus took a humble position, a low position, but he is still God. And when he says, glorify me and I'll glorify you, he is speaking of his natural position in relationship with the Father. And he says that in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The hour has come for the purpose of Jesus' humiliation to be complete and the relationship 
will be demonstrated. At the cross, God will be glorified. It really should get our attention, though, that Jesus prayed. And again, this is a recap of last week, but it's worth noting. Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. He went out on mountainsides by himself to pray. He went to to quiet places in the very early morning, late at night. Luke 5.16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. If Jesus, who is in perfect relationship with the Father, remember they're in lockstep. They're walking side by side. If he goes out to pray, shouldn't we be even more dedicated to prayer? I don't know about you guys, but I always feel like I'm stumbling off in the darkness. I'm certainly not in lockstep with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I need all the prayer I can get. So shouldn't we be even more dedicated to prayer, to communicating with God? I mean, Jesus prayed and prayed. If we flipped over to John eleven forty one through 42, it's another recorded prayer. This is a, one of the prayers that, that's recorded. It says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. If Jesus prayed continually, if Jesus frequently went to the woods, went to the gardens, went to the hills to pray, can we do any less? Shouldn't we do more? It's all about this relationship, though. Jesus says, I will glorify you, Father, by submitting, by humiliation and suffering death on the cross. Why? How will God be glorified? What good can come from an innocent man being beaten and put to death on a cross? Again, it's an expression of God's attributes. God's justice and wrath against a rebellious people who have done every kind of evil. Murder and theft and idolatry and deception and fornication. We have debased ourselves in ways even the devil couldn't imagine. We have put ourselves in God's rightful place. Desperate to steal blessings we have already been promised. Disobeying commands, good commands, that make the world a better place. On one hand, rejecting our inheritance, and on the other, trying to take it from our brothers and sisters and from God. God's justice and wrath, a deserving punishment for crimes against the king, is poured out. The full measure, the full draft, the cup of wrath filled to the brim with justice for every kind of wickedness. And God's love and mercy and forgiveness and grace poured out on an undeserving people. When Jesus says, I will glorify you, Father, he is submitting to the good purpose of God to restore relationship to mankind. And he says exactly that in verses 2 through 4. He says, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give what eternal life to all those you have given him. And now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says this plan, this hour, this purpose will bring glory to the Son, glory to the Father, and will bring a restored relationship to those who know God and know Jesus. Again, relationship. Father, glorify the Son so you can be glorified. Holy Spirit, glorify the Son. Son, glorify the Father. Father, glorify the Son. Blessed, holy Trinity. And this is a problem for folks who deny Christ. You cannot praise the Father without the Son. You cannot seek the Father without finding Jesus. You cannot know the Father without knowing the Son. If you deny the Son, you deny the Father. John seven eighteen, 
says this. It says, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So the opposite is true. If you seek the Father, you will find the Father and the Son. Why? Because the Holy Spirit points to the Father and the Son. If you know the Son, you know the Father. Why? Because the Son submits to, obeys, and gives glory to the Father. If you know the Son, you have the Spirit. Why? Because the Father and the Son send the Spirit to those who seek them. Why? To the praise of their glory. That's why. Blessed Holy Trinity. John 13, 31 says, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. It says, Those who seek the Son receive a home with the Father and Spirit who live with us, abide with us. And God chose to show us this relationship in the Trinity as Father and Son. It gives us this portrait of authority in the Father, but also intimacy and family and inheritance and shared traits, like Father, like Son. We can picture Father and Son living together, working together. We can picture their shared traits, their shared skills. We can understand that the Son is heir to the throne, heir to the kingdom. We can understand why the Father would listen to the Son and why they would make decisions together. God could have communicated this to us in any way. He chose to use Father and Son. And Jesus says, this plan, this hour, this purpose will bring glory to the Son, glory to the Father, and will bring a restored relationship to those who know God and know Jesus. We spoke of trust and hope. And Jesus says, trust me, believe me, believe in me. I am going through the cross, through death, to eternal glory. And when I do, I am opening a way for you. I am the door. I am guarding the pen this dark night, and my sheep can enter through me. So how do we access the way? How do we open the door? Jesus says, eternal life is in what? In knowing, in having a relationship with the Son and the Father. It's right there in your bulletins, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So in this opening part, it's a prayer. It is a prayer about relationship and the fulfillment of purpose in history. And after this section about the Son glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son, Jesus will pray for the glorification of the disciples and then the church. And out of this, we should have a renewed excitement for the Gospels, and especially this high priestly prayer. We should have a renewed commitment to prayer. We have seen and will see how Jesus spent time dedicated to prayer, to talking with the Father. If Jesus did it, we should do so more. Last, we looked at relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and how the cross fulfilled their purpose in a singular event in history and how Jesus and God were glorified in fulfilling the redemptive, restorative purpose of the cross and how we can have a relationship with Father and Son and Spirit. So now we get to celebrate communion. 
So uh, we've got the elements up here. I sorry I didn't get music um, in the into the slides, but uh, we'll go up in rows and we'll we'll get the elements and then we'll pray. And I've got First Corinthians up here and we'll we'll have communion together. So if we can, yeah. Don't everybody get up at once. We don't want to miss anybody. Did everybody get juice and crackers and all that? Great. So, again, you can do this in your own time or you can wait for me, but um, let's, um, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we've gathered here together in your name. We have gathered together as the people of God. We have opened your word in front of us. We uh, have poured through part of of the text, and now we, uh, we're we seeking to obey you. We're seeking to do what you have asked us to do. So we've got the juice and the crackers in front of us, Father, and we're just asking that you, uh, that you bless this time that we have together, that uh, you open our hearts and open our minds. And first of all, Father, please forgive us. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our our trespasses, forgive us the things that we did intentionally and unintentionally that hurt you. We are a rebellious people. We try and do things our own way. We uh, 
cheat and lie and steal and fill our lives with lust for material things and jealousy. And Father, we just ask that you break those things out of us, that you break those things off of us, that um, you would wash us and make us clean again, that as we come to you, that as we take these elements, that you would make us new and whole again. Give us another chance. Father, we are seeking this marathon, seeking to continue to abide in you. So we come to you anew. We just ask that in this moment that you uh, that you wash us and make us clean, that you cover us, that we could come to you. So on the um, on the night of his betrayal, he took the bread and he uh, he blessed and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant which is sealed in my blood. And do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Amen. So glad to see everyone this morning. Let's go fellowship.